Hi, and welcome to Science Brunch. I'm Mae Prince, and I'm here with Katie McKissick, creator of Beatrice the Biologist. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? I'm good. Yeah? How was this week? Well, I learned something new. I learned that viruses get viruses. Really? I actually didn't know that. I'm not ashamed to admit when I don't know something. <laughs> That's It happens to me all the time. <laughs> um, yeah, I was reading about how there are... First of all, there are some megaviruses that are just super, super big. I mean, when, when people were looking at them, uh, they thought they were bacteria. They thought they were anything other than viruses because hmm. viruses are usually really, really small. Right. I mean, you know, a hundredth the size of a, of a small bacterium. I mean, they're just itty bitty. Because they infect bacteria. Yeah. That, that's, that's actually something I really liked. Uh, expressing in some of some of my first comics. I haven't done it for a while. Actually, no, I take that back. I did it not too long ago because uh, people do kind of lump those together sometimes because it's like, oh, there there are two things that can cause, right. Make cause you sick. disease. Yeah, so let's, or, you know, infections. So let's just lump them together. Bacteria and viruses, bacteria and viruses. Um, so I like to always remind people that bacteria are very much living things and they get viruses and viruses are depending on who you ask, kind of <laughs> on the border, on the cusp of being a living thing, a living organism. Um, yeah. Because in terms of how we define organisms these days, being able to reproduce yourself with your own machinery is kind of something that we consider a necessity of mm -hmm. being qualified as something that's alive. And viruses can't do it on their own. They have to, the whole thing about why they infect other cells is that that's just how they reproduce. And that's just... That is the path they have chosen. Right. Because they, what do they, inject their DNA and then it replicates within the cell right. and then eventually busts right. that cell open, killing it, but then releasing a whole bunch of baby viruses. Yeah. And there are variations thereof. I mean, some, some viruses have DNA, some viruses have RNA, mm. some of them, yeah, just go straight for this lytic cycle where they just, yeah, the DNA, they, they inject it in there and it just starts replicating and building new viruses. And yeah, it just, the cell explodes <laughs> with all the viruses just spewing out everywhere to go do it again <laughs> somewhere else. Some of them inject them in, inject themselves into your DNA they just uh -huh. put their DNA and just kind of file it away with yours and stay there forever. Some of them stay there for 10 years and then become active. Hmm. That's something that uh, HIV does. You can have it for a very long right. time and it won't do anything. And then, you know, years later, it can, can just kind of awaken. Um, and some of them just, just put their DNA in there and just never do anything. I mean, hmm. about, I think it's 8%. Of our DNA, when we when we when we looked at look and really kind of say, oh, this this codes for this, and this is just in in between, or this is the part of the DNA that controls whether or not this gene is turned on or off. You know, all the different parts of your DNA, what their functions are. There's about eight percent that's just viruses. Oh god, <laughs> it's just it's just sitting there. That's kind of disturbing. <laughs> You're like seventy percent water and eight percent viruses. Yay. <laughs> um, so but yeah, viruses. so I always like to mention, like, oh yeah, bacteria get viruses. That's how you can kind of remember that they are different right um and viruses are yeah living not non-living bacteria are just like us yeah they're just just trying but to so get then by. apparently viruses are just like us too if they yeah, can so get viruses. viruses will get big viruses can get these smaller can get smaller viruses and how does that work i don't know <laughs> magic <laughs> yes it no i mean it's my magic yeah they, they kind of they kind of figured out because they saw that these these mega viruses actually had uh 
had uh, you know have you heard about CRISPR? We will we'll do a whole episode on CRISPR another time. Probably it sounds vaguely familiar. Yeah, it's that it's basically like the the DNA scissors that you can use to chop up DNA, and they're using it to create all kinds of uh, you know transgenic things where they're like, oh, let's take this gene right. and clip it and put it in this other organism's genome and blah, blah, blah. But yeah, so they basically discovered that these big viruses had a mechanism to chop up DNA and that's to help defend themselves against these other viruses trying to put their DNA in with the bigger viruses' ah. DNA. Like, that's not my DNA. Get rid of it. Ah. So, yeah. And I didn't know that. I didn't. I didn't know that viruses could get viruses. I thought that was really interesting. You learn new stuff every day. Mm-hmm. Well, today we're going to learn about Albert Einstein. Albert. Whom I think everyone ever. I would like to meet someone who's like <laughs> Albert who? Yeah. <laughs> what was his name? Something Char- something Einstein. Einstein. Ein- woo? <laughs> yeah. Well, he almost wasn't named Albert, by the way. Oh. He was almost named Abraham. But then his parents, mm. who were Jewish, but not religious... We're like, yeah, it sounds too Jewish. We'll name him Albert. <laughs> so we could have been we could have ended up with Abraham Einstein. Abraham Einstein. Yeah. But there was already another famous Abraham. We got we, we got that box checked. We Either needed way. an Albert. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you know about Albert Einstein off the top of your head? I know he had great hair. Yes, true. <laughs> like the least important an thing. objective I'm, I'm fact. sorry yeah i mean i know that he was an incredibly smart person i know that he published a lot of his most impressive things when he worked as a patent clerk yep and you know how i learned that how <clears throat> i will tell you so <laughs> i us. when i was a wee a wee katie uh-huh i watched the movie ghostbusters <laughs> possibly 500 times i'm trying not to exaggerate definitely hundreds of times because we would truly watch it every day and sometimes multiple times a day for years kids are weird so we're talking hundreds of times and there is a part where dr venkman played by bill murray talks about einstein and it's when they got kicked out of the university where they were working because their research is bupkis Uh at the time and you know not respected or whatever and they were trying to figure out what to do and so dan Aykroyd and bill murray are discussing it and on the steps of columbia or wherever they're supposed to be and um and he was just like what are we gonna do like we have no money and he was like big deal einstein did his best work when he was working as a patent clerk (laughs) and dan Aykroyd goes you know how much a patent clerk earns (laughs) and then bill murray goes no (laughs) That's actually an interesting point that we'll get to because Einstein felt similarly. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so I know that I know I know that you know there's general relativity. There I know e equals mc squared, and I know that he also was working on a grand unified theory that mm-hmm. didn't towards towards the end uh, that didn't really uh, co- coalesce, that didn't come together quite so much. Yeah. So researching Einstein and figuring out how to fit him into, you know, 30 yeah. minutes or so, super easy, by the way. <laughs> I uh, I wasn't up all night at all looking up stuff <laughs> oh, at the last minute. No, I think the key is this, this is not going to explain everything that he no. did because he was brilliant yeah we'll have spin-offs where we talk yeah. about probably one theory at a time or or, or just so the science a of, lot of this yeah. will be throwing out things that you recognize and it, they're hard to explain because there's so much information on the back end that you have to kind of know mm-hmm. which i discovered i was like oh man <laughs> i need to brush physics. up on my high school physics <laughs> exactly but the the interesting thing is is that 
because he's so famous, there's so much information out there, like people, like science communicators trying to explain all of his theories and why they were important and what they changed, that there's so much information on the internet that you should just start Googling if you're interested. Yeah. And the key that I found was don't rely on one thing to explain it to you. Like if you watch a video and you don't understand the concept of general relativity or whatever, watch another one yeah. because they will explain it slightly differently and yeah, you start to be able to piece it together. Yeah, you kind of angles. overlap, like little bits overlap, overlap, overlap. And like eventually you'll get kind of a picture. Obviously, don't feel bad if you don't understand everything about it because mm -hmm. it, it's freaking like he revolutionized the field of physics, which I think is something that we sometimes forget. Right. Before that, you know, Newton's laws, you know, of an object in motion, whatever, those all made sense of the mechanical universe. And what Einstein came along and said, well, yeah, that makes sense in this context. Right. But How, really. Like our everyday lives, essentially. Yeah. Not going the speed of light. Right. But really, the universe works this way. Right. And then he came up with this theory that basically walked into science and just flipped the table on everyone. <laughs> <laughs> and they're all like, oh, my God. What are you doing? You're making me uncomfortable. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so this all started. Einstein was born in uh, southwestern Germany in Ulm. Ulm. He was actually born on Pi Day, oh, March 14th, oh, right. yeah. 1879. He was almost named Abraham, named Albert instead. His parents were Jewish, but not religious. Um, he kind of dabbled in religion later because, yeah, later, when he was like nine, he was like, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be Jewish. Like he was all about it. He followed all the rules. His family was like, weirdo, <laughs> keeping the Sabbath, whatever. He later kind of broke with that. And I'll, I'll get into that. He was slow to learn how to talk. He was not very verbal until about the age of two or three. Okay, because that is one of the big myths. People, I yeah. think people have exaggerated to four or five. I, I think or they've something. exaggerated. I think it was, you know, just like sometimes you're just you just take your time mm -hmm. developing. And the thing about him was he was always a visualizer. Like he always thought in pictures and ideas mm. rather than words. So when he was thinking, he said he didn't think in words. He thought in images, and then he had to translate that into words so that other people could understand what the hell he was talking oh, about. Oh, super yeah. visual thinker. I so did not he was just that. always that way. It's not that yeah. he was slow. He's just different, like literally yeah. different. Yeah. So if your kid's slow to talk, you know, Einstein well, was I, that way. I think that's probably why it got exaggerated was because it was this this thing people would say if your child was maybe not um, hitting every developmental milestone perfectly on time yep. and people would start to freak out a little bit. And then you say, hey, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean anything. Einstein didn't talk until he was two, two or three, like you were saying. I mean, yeah. and that's, and I, how do you define talk? I mean, like, was this for right. sentences or was it whatever? I mean, was, it, was he communicating at all? Was he with you? Was he was, you and, know, looking and at you? Because he was different, he was able to disrupt the entire field of physics. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. It was. It's an important part of who he was, and um, it's to be celebrated. You know. Yes. I feel like the more and more we come. I mean, when I was reading about him and his experience with the German educational system, which was extremely structured, and then where he finally kind of came into his own, it made me really think about the way that our educational system works and how like the one size fits all sort of nature. Yeah, and how like the whole college process. You know, the process of higher education is extremely regimented and tested. And he was not very good at testing mm -hmm. and not very good at certain subjects. And that held him back to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so when he was young, slow to talk, whatever, he finally figured it out. And then uh, when he was younger, his father actually gave him a compass at one point, I think when he was sick, you know, just to amuse him. 
And he was fascinated that the needle was controlled by an unseen force. Yeah. And he later described that as an, a formative experience, like when he started wondering about the unseen forces of the universe and what makes them tick, basically. So parenting tips so far, don't freak out about all of the developmental milestones and give your kid a compass when yep. they're sick. Give them something that will confuse <laughs> them. <laughs> and they'll be like, what is confuse this? Confuse your children. Yeah. Exactly. Confuse them early, and mm -hmm. then maybe they'll become geniuses. And often. Yeah. And the other thing is, his mom introduced him to music. He wasn't really interested in it before. He was like, Probably because mm -hmm. he's such a visual person. Yeah. But she was a pianist, and she wanted him to play some she music. She what? <laughs> Sorry. You know what I said. <laughs> well, we need our bleep. <laughs> um, anyway, so she was a pianist. She introduced him to Mozart sonatas. And he was like, oh, this is beautiful. This is the best thing I've ever heard. I can see the math that's happening in it. <laughs> kind of. So, like, he took it up. He played the violin. He would accompany her in duets. And he just loved Mozart. Oh. And that love of music kind of developed throughout his life. And he continued to play the violin. And it, they said that even when, you know, he was working on a, an issue, like, in his head, like, thinking through a problem, he would play the violin. Oh, I didn't and, know And, like, that. halfway through, he'd be like... Oh, there's a solution. That's yep. beautiful. Yeah. So he was apparently very good at holding two ideas in his head at once. And I think that was part of it. Like being able mm. to play music and think through a problem. Well, it's at kind the same of, it sounds time. very meditative. I mean, just like they yeah. say that sometimes you're stuck, go on a walk. Yeah. Because you need to just get out of whatever. And rut he would you're improvise in. and yeah. play, you know, so whatever. He is, you know, clearly a talented guy. He actually attended Catholic school when he was younger. And then this was all in Germany. And it didn't matter because he wasn't very religious, although his Jewishness was something that, of course, his classmates made fun of because <laughs> kids are jerks and God also anti-Semitism. Yeah. Um, but another popular myth is that he failed math in school. Not true. Oh, yeah, true. that's right. I have heard Not that. true. Yeah. He did very well and said, before I was 15, I had mastered differential and integral calculus. So that doesn't sound to me like <laughs> he failed math. Um, he was really good at it. I wonder the, if there's a nugget of truth, like maybe he was just solving the problems in a different way than the teacher was instructing them that, to. That was, that was true, because even when he went to high school and college, the professor would hand out like a way to do the experiment, and he would just throw it in the trash do his own way, and yeah. do it his own way. Like So he didn't make a whole lot of friends with the, prof <laughs> the professors in college because of that. But he was also influenced by a poor medical student who used to come and have dinner with his family once a week, and that medical student would bring him like these books on science and geometry and Albert taught himself algebra and you know just how kids do when they're 12 yeah teaching themselves math um <laughs> but it really influenced him because the series that uh, this medical student gave him addressed the speed of light which of course mm. came into play later when he was formulating all of his famous theories so at one point, he did become intensely religious and kosher for about three years. <laughs> uh, but then as he started reading more about, you know, math and science and all of that, he broke with religion completely because he realized that the stories of the Bible could not possibly be true based on scientific concepts. Mm -hmm. And then this kind of made him extremely suspicious of any kind of authority, oh. religion in particular, but also extending to the government and the military and any authoritative figure, hmm. which made him a bit of an outsider. 
because, of course, he was living in Germany, which, as we all know, uh, was headed in a direction that was very authoritative. Oh, my gosh, really? Yeah. Who knew? Shocker. World War II, everyone. So he was kind of an out-of-the-box thinker. Mm -hmm. He was kind of a hippie of his time, you know? (laughs) Like, you know, it's like those those people who send their kids to to the kindergarten where the kids just run around outside all day. Yeah, Yeah. but like one step beyond that, we're just running around in the woods, (laughs) which sounds awesome. (laughs) He was a feral child. Yeah, he was. And then, you know, at 16, as one does, he wrote his first essay on theoretical physics. I think it ended up being wrong. But the point is, the kid was writing scientific papers as a teenager before he even got to college. So he graduated like two years early. He wanted to go to college right away. There was an age requirement of 18. So he's like tried to get around it. And they're like, you know what? You did really well in the physics and math, but you kind of flunked everything else. He was really bad at French. (laughs) (laughs) And by this time, he had moved uh, to Switzerland. And so like, you know what, why don't you take a year or two and booster studies at this school? And this school was kind of a hippy-dippy school. So they encouraged visualized images so this was a method that he used and that like resonated with him for and languages? the way that he thought just as a way of learning and teaching. Oh. So what he did was he wasn't like a super big lab scientist. What his series came from was him sitting and thinking through a problem, visualizing it in his mind and thinking, "All right, what why would this work or why would this not work?" And then using statistical models to say, "Okay, it's likely that this theory would work out or not work out. So it's kind of amazing. So his and, lab was like a chair. Well, yes. So his <laughs> lab. So after he graduated, he was like, all right, I'm going to get an academic job. It's going to be awesome. And then none of his professors would give him good recommendations <laughs> because he was such a jerk. He never showed up to class. Like he did all the experiments in a different way. He actually like blew up a lab once and hurt his hand. Oh, man. <laughs> he had to go to the doctor for stitches. Like this oh, is kind of student he was. So he was having a super hard time, like a couple years where he could not find an academic job. He was just like doing tutoring on the side, whatever. Finally, through the father of a friend, he gets a position in Bern in the patent office. Uh, the patent as, clerk. As a patent examiner. Do you know what a patent clerk earns? Not very much. Not very much, but it turns out more than he would have earned as a junior faculty member. What? Yeah. So on top of that, um... so this is why he was excited. He said that he earned more than he would have as a junior professor. And on top of that, he was able to complete his work in two to three hours every day and then just sit there and, <laughs> and think about science. I had a job like that once. <laughs> I know. But I did not come up with four theories or whatever that he came up yeah, with that year. No, me neither. Yeah. Uh, I just started Beatrice Biologist instead. Yeah. But that is, I th- there's, there's some serious... Uh, there's there's wisdom in, in like just get a job that is so easy you have all of this brain space and all this bandwidth yep. to think about other things but you're just paying your bills and, and this is yep. exactly what he said. he said whenever anybody would come by i would cram my notes into my desk drawer and pretend <laughs> to work and that's like we've all been there it's like the uh the old school minesweeper <laughs> um but yeah the thing that he said about his job and the effect that it had on him being able to produce because he produced his first most important theories while he was working as a patent clerk 
And the thing of it was, was that he said, an academic career in which a person is forced to produce scientific writings in great amounts creates a danger of intellectual superficiality. Mm. So his argument was, if he had gotten a job as a junior professor, there would have been all this pressure to publish all the time. And that means that you have to publish usually stuff that doesn't have much meaning because you're just trying to pump out the volume. Isn't it sad that this is still so relevant? Yes. And this <laughs> is what really struck me because the what he's basically arguing for is the room to sit mm-hmm and think and take your time yeah and it's funny because waste makes waste well i once heard kip thorne who is a famous caltech professor who was the advisor on interstellar for all of Mm -hmm. you know the science behind that film he kind of made the same argument he was like yeah i was slow in in college i just took longer than everyone and Mm -hmm. he just needed time to sit and think about stuff and it turns out, yeah, he's brilliant. He just needs, yeah, he just needs the room well, yeah, some, and the time. Some, some brilliant thing is need time to marinate. Yeah, I found that extremely interesting. Huh. The theories that he came up with are incredible. While he's hanging out in Switzerland, first of all, he hooks up with a couple of guys, and they're like, get together, talk about science, and you know, big ideas in science. They call themselves the Olympia Academy. And their logo was Einstein's bust in profile <laughs> beneath a string of sausages. What? <laughs> so, <laughs> um, they didn't take themselves too, too seriously. This is silly. It's silly. And then, you know, this is the guy. So I was mean, Einstein always silly? I mean, like those pictures yeah. of him sticking his tongue yeah. out. Was he, he was just like silly just from the get-go. He was always like a nonconformist and he was described as impudent. Man. Yeah. I'm so glad we're having him over for brunch. I know, right? So... You know, he's in his mid-20s at this point. So okay. imagine the guys you knew in their mid-20s. And then Einstein, instead of growing it up all the time, I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure he did it some of the time, he had what was called his miracle year in 1905, ah. where he came up with a whole bunch of theories, one of which disrupted the field of physics. So... Before this, Isaac Newton had his, you know, had his mm-hmm. laws to describe the universe. It was believed action, that, reaction, right, that kind things of in motion, stay in motion, force something, equals force. mass times uh-huh. acceleration, that kind of thing, which works just fine for the mechanical universe. But what Einstein wanted was a theory that worked for the entire universe, right? Meaning not just here on Earth, but a billion light years away, mm-hmm. you know, all that stuff. Okay, so how many there were? How many things in one year? I think there were. F- Four or five. It's a lot. Yeah, he did these in bursts. So just to put things in context, the electron was discovered in 1897. Okay. But I think the general feeling in the scientific community was still like, atoms, what? (laughs) Like, they they still weren't. Like boo atoms or just like, we don't really understand them yet? They still weren't sure about them. They didn't know about their structure really yet. Um, So they're still figuring it out. And so it was kind of like in the the twilight zone of, you know, accepting them wholeheartedly. Aren't those things weird? Yeah. Yeah. Aren't those things weird? Exactly. So before this, or up until this point, they had established that light was a wave. Okay. Not a particle. Okay. Which we now know, eh, it's not an either-or situation. They're both. They're both. And so Einstein had a theory that light had the characteristics of a particle as well. 
And uh, this helped explain what was called the photoelectric effect. And these particles became known as photons starting in 1926. Photons. That's one of my favorite science terms. I just love saying yeah. it so much. And and it's kind of, it's one photon is one quantum of light, which is basically like a little packet. Little, yep, little light packet. Little, mm-hmm. you know, gift of light. I remember one time in high school science when we were ta- talking about photons and my teacher was like, they're everywhere. They're bombarding you right now. Yeah. And the guy behind me just started going, ow, ow. <laughs> Yeah. And so this concept is actually what won him his Nobel Prize in 1921. Okay. This was it, not the theory of general relativity. Which photons. We're going to get to. It was photons. Because this revolutionized physics and also paved the way for quantum physics, mm. which I think gained momentum in the 20s, which we now know, you know, quantum computers, like trying to figure right. that whole thing out. He had a little bit of a difficult time with some aspects of quantum theory. Like he... He believed that the speed of light was the speed limit for the universe. Like right. nothing can go faster than the speed of light. Mm-hmm. However, there is this thing called quantum entanglement where two particles can be any distance apart, like a billion light years apart, and communicate instantaneously, basically. So what happens to one happens to the other one instantaneously. Mm-hmm. He didn't like that about quantum theory because... He believed that nothing could move faster than the speed of light. So he thought, no, a signal must go between them. Ah. And that signal can go no faster than the speed of light. So it would take, if they were 1 billion light years apart, it would take 1 billion years for one to affect the other. Right. But that's not true. So he like struggled with that. And Mm -hmm. this is why... In trying to come up with a, a theory of the universe that explained everything, I mean, way to set the bar real low, yeah. Einstein. Um, <laughs> yeah, the grand unifying theory was trying to marry, I mean, black holes and these things at huge scales yeah, yeah with the tiniest, tiniest scales, and it kind of started unraveling. So, you know, he may have set the bar a little too high, but he didn't, I guess he didn't believe in... Explain you know. everything <laughs> ever right now. <laughs> Just do it right now. A real modest goal he set for himself. (laughs) But yeah, like during this miracle year, he wrote several papers. One of them was a dissertation on the size of molecules, which got him his PhD from the University of Zurich. Finally, he was known as Dr. Einstein. Before that, he was just patent clerk. (laughs) (laughs) And then 11 days after finishing his dissertation, he produced a paper explaining a phenomenon known as Brownian motion, Ah. which sounded familiar to me. I I had to look it up again. Yeah. So the whole thing about Brownian motion is that this guy named Robert Brown in 1828, so years before, had looked at pollen particles suspended in water under a microscope and noticed that even though there were no currents in the water or anything, it was perfectly still, the pollen particles were moving mm-hmm. and like kind of like jiggling around. And he was like, what is happening? So he <laughs> never figured it out. But, but he still got it named after him. They named it you know after what? him. I need like, to look at. I need to find something really weird, <laughs> and just to be like, "Hey guys, this thing's really weird." And so it's that when the they McKissick figure effect. it out, yeah, a hundred years later, they'll be like, "Oh, this McKissick, McKissickian motion." Yeah, my name's not good for this. Maybe not. Yeah, Cadian motion. Yeah. So they didn't know what it was. No one knew what it was. You know, seventy years later, seventy-five years later, Einstein comes around. He's like, "Well, guys." <laughs> You know, I think it's because water molecules are hitting the pollen. But people are like, no, that's impossible. Because (laughs) the pollen particle is 10,000 times the size of a water molecule. Mm -hmm. And Einstein, which now seems very, yeah, this makes sense when you think about it. But he was like, well, it's not just one. Yeah, there's a lot of them. Yeah, there's lots of molecules hitting the pollen. But the thing is, they're not hitting it all uniformly at the same time from all sides. He says sometimes the pollen particle gets hit more from one side than the other. And that's when it moves. And you can see that motion. 
And so he basically made a he, he did a statistical analysis of, of how far a pollen particle should travel in a certain amount of time based on the amount of water molecules probably bombarding it at any moment at a certain pressure and temperature. And this other guy a couple months later like actually did the experiment for him. So yeah. Einstein just came up with the idea and this other guy was like, well, I'm going to try it. I'll just give it a whirl. And it worked. And they were like, oh. Okay. Thanks. Thanks, <laughs> Thanks, Einstein. Yeah. You, was that was that something people said yet? <laughs> Brilliant I, I, idea, <laughs> Einstein. Like, fine. You're kind of smart. It's fine. Yeah. So the most famous theory that he's known for is the theory of uh, special relativity. Right. Which, um, so objects move relatively to each other. Mm-hmm. If you're in a car going 50 miles an hour and children are throwing a ball inside the car at 10 miles an hour back and forth... To them, it just seems like 10 miles an hour back and forth, because obviously, you know, if you're in a car and you throw a ball, it doesn't like fly out the window or something. Like as long as the car remains <laughs> in the you, same direction out the and speed. Yeah. 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 So if it's a steady direction and speed, things act just as if you were standing still. Right. However, from an observer standing on the side of the road, it looks like those kids are throwing a ball going 60 miles an hour because right. it's, you're just adding. Right. The 50 miles an hour of the car plus the 10 miles an hour of the ball. If, if they're throwing it in the same direction as the car is moving. Right, right. And then backward, you just subtract it. Right. So this is all, he was like, no, that's, it's relative to where you are. So if your car is going at the speed of light, things get weird. <laughs> yeah. So, so we know that there's this you know, whole relative effect of you can see like things at different speeds than the people in going that same speed, for right. example. However, what he found out was the speed of light is always constant. Mm -hmm. So regardless of how or where or how fast you're going, the speed of light is always the same. The thing that kind of made the theory of general relativity special was up until this point, Newton, who had been around, you know, 100 whatever years before, quite quite a while, had come up with this whole theory of gravity. And his theory, which he didn't fully, I mean, he didn't fully understand what gravity was, and he didn't try to figure it out. He was just like, things get pulled downward. It's definitely happening. There's this force that pulls things downward. Mm -hmm. And Einstein came along, and what he said is that, no, things don't get pulled downward. They get pushed downward. Mm. But what is pushing us? So <laughs> Katie's eyes just got real big. <laughs> like, what are you even saying right now? So what Einstein decided to do was figure out where gravity came from in the first place, which Newton never tried to do. Mm-hmm. Under Newton's theory, he thought that time didn't really have anything to do with space. Like if you went out to a star or whatever, and mm-hmm. you're floating in the middle of space, there's no time. Newton doesn't care about it time. It doesn't matter. Do whatever yeah. you want. <laughs> and what Einstein did was to combine those two things. So he was like, space, no, time. space and time are not separate things. Space and time are part of the same thing they're a fabric so they're woven exactly so if you change one you are changing the other okay so I'm with you i'm with you space yeah. time space time space time if you watch doctor who i guess you're a fan of space time i've never watched it i'm space sorry time. <laughs> so he said that massive objects warp the space time around them by basically stretching it. So with our fabric analogy, it totally works. Yeah, if you have some lycra. Yeah, if you're holding it taut and you put something really heavy on it, it boos. Exactly, it bows towards the middle. So that's basically like, think of the actual weave of the fabric. Mm -hmm. As it stretches, the threads get pulled further and further apart. And this means that clocks closer to Earth, for example, 
seem to be moving slower than clocks that are further away from Earth's mass. Okay. This was just derived from Einstein's brain. And this theory, though, and his calculations had to be employed in developing GPS because the satellites, which are, you know, I think thousands of miles away from the Earth. Yeah, they're like... Oh, I, I think it's 12,000 or something like that. Well, it depends. There's a couple of different, right. it depends on their orbit. But yeah, like some of them are like 23, uh, 23,000 miles. Yeah. Yeah. So they're a significant distance from Earth. And they're, you know, the reliability of the whole GPS system relies on their ability to be synchronized in time. Mm-hmm. So what they had to do was account for this calculation that Einstein came up with. And they have to make up that difference because otherwise, instead of showing you a GPS location, you know, within a couple yards, it's going to be thrown off by miles. Yeah, that's not helpful. So Einstein came up with this theory of general relativity in 1915. And they didn't know how to prove it. They were like, well, how do you prove that space-time can warp? Because what Einstein yeah. said... <laughs> that's a bit of a toughie, I would say. Well, yeah. And what Einstein said was that it will bend light mm. because, you know, light is traveling through space-time. And if space-time bends, so will light. And we'll be able oh. to see that with our eyes. And so people were like, what? So one prediction of general relativity was that light should not travel in a perfectly straight line. That if space-time bends, light will bend with it. Right. In 1919, there was a solar eclipse that provided the perfect opportunity to demonstrate this curvature. So basically, they knew, they could tell where certain stars were. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to see if the position of those stars changed based on the effect of the sun's gravity. Mm -hmm. So... When the moon moved in front of the sun, it was able to like dim the light enough where they could see the star that was kind of positioned behind the sun in a straight line of view, say. And instead of appearing where it should have, where they knew it was, Uh it appeared to be somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And so that's how they knew that the light was bending. Gotcha. And this is actually called gravitational lensing. And astronomers use this method all the time to see... Stars behind other stars or stars oh. behind other massive objects. Because if, you, you know, if you're holding right. your two fists up it's and like one is in front the of the other, you can't see the other one. Exactly. Yeah. But what's happening is that you can actually see the light from the star behind because it's curving around the object in front of it. So this is how astronomers can actually create a picture of a star that they can't see in a straight line of sight. But because Ooh. of this bending of space time, they're like, oh, we know exactly what this star looks like. Thank you, space time. Thank you, space time. (laughs) So this all took place, you know, this theory was in 1915. And this was, you know, 10 years after his miracle year. During his miracle year of 1905, he also came up with E equals MC squared, which is arguably the most famous equation in all of physics. Yeah. And it basically suggested that matter was a form of energy, Mm -hmm. not a separate thing. Right. And if you look at the equation, you can actually see what he was talking about. So... E equals mc squared. C is the speed of light. Mm-hmm. M is for mass. E is for energy. And what it means is that, you know, the speed of light is a high number. <laughs> That's C, and it's squared, so it's even bigger. And it needs to be multiplied by just a tiny amount of mass to equal energy. A lot of energy. Yeah, so he's saying that any tiny amount of mass has an enormous amount of potential energy mm-hmm. in it. It is energy but not in kinetic form i am energy yes you are energy (laughs) but we're like walking bombs hi energy (laughs) hello energy bombs so this was also a a new concept to be like 
these are not separate things. These are the same thing. This is kind of his deal. He's yeah, like, so he's space and time, not yeah, separate. Yes, exactly. Combining yeah. things. And people were just like, no, these all fit into nice little boxes. Isn't yeah. that so great? He's like, nope, they're all in the same box. They're all the same thing. And Sorry. The people are like, no. <laughs> so Don't mess with the box. The interesting thing about, you know, the bending of space time and all that, they observed that during the eclipse, right? Mm-hmm. But they hadn't detected it with any kind of instrument they can like see it but they don't know why it's happening or what exactly the measurement of it is right. like quantifying can, it yeah they can different. look at the distance and you know calculations but they hadn't detected proof of this kind of bending so this is where LIGO comes in which we had discussed I think a couple episodes ago uh-huh. just recently within the past couple of months This announcement was made by the National Science Foundation and a bunch of scientists who have been working on this for the past 30 years. They built an instrument to detect the waves of gravity in the universe. The gravitational waves. So gravitational waves are the stretching and contracting of space-time. So if you think of space and time together as lycra, for example, it's stretching and bending, and you should be able to measure that. Mm -hmm. The problem is, is that the amount that it's stretching and bending is so tiny. I think it's a thousandth the size of a proton, which, super tiny. 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 So they had to build an instrument that was sophisticated enough in order to detect this. They had to build a really giant thing to detect a really small thing. Exactly. And the way that they built it was also pretty interesting. They basically built these giant l-shaped lasers. Laser tubes. And the lasers bounce back and forth between the two sides. And as space-time ripples, it will contract one of the laser ends and expand the other one. Mm-hmm. And so usually when nothing is moving, the lasers just like cancel each other out mm-hmm. because that's the way they've, they're bouncing around. But as soon as something disrupts that, they can see it. That's basically how LIGO works. It's much more complicated. <laughs> <laughs> but then... That, for the first time, showed that we could actually detect these movements right. in space-time. So it's like, I mean, I don't want the, the word see is, is used loosely, but we can see space-time. We can measure space-time. Right. We can interpret it as a wave, right. which we can then hear. The aliens are talking to us. I know. So... This is known as a chirp. Right. And if you were paying attention to Twitter when this discovery or this announcement was made by the NSF um, a couple months ago, a lot of scientists were submitting their own own (laughs) interpretations of the chirp. Impressions of the chirp. Yeah, it was kind of cute. This was 100 years after Einstein theorized that, you know, this existed. And it was, I mean, it's crazy that he just thought about it in his head. Mm-hmm. And then a hundred years later, we're like, "Oh, good, we finally proved it." <laughs> Man, I just, I just love that what he was doing was just thinking deep thoughts. Yeah, like, like seriously, just kind of like, you know what? I think that this is this, and that is that. Yeah, someone else will prove it later and actually detect it later. That's someone else's problem. Yeah, I, I, I like that separation. But the the chirp is. The actual little wave signature that they got from LIGO that said, hey, look, there is this disturbance mm-hmm. that was replicated at, you know, really far away, too. So we mm-hmm. know it wasn't just this outlier or, or like we said on our first episode, someone burping down the hall. Right. Um, and that is them 
putting it into a synthesizer essentially and saying, well, here's the shape of this wave. What would that sound like as a sound wave? Mm-hmm. You know, you know, for like, it's a way to understand. Yeah. It. If we're, if we're going to make a DJ, DJ Einstein right here, like here, like how's this sound? And, and the reason why they were able to recognize that as a gravitational wave is because of the calculations that they had done beforehand, before ever seeing it or detecting it, they were like, if there, if it exists mm-hmm. in the way that Einstein predicted, it will look like this. Oh, okay. And then when they they found that, I mean, this is why a lot of scientists were very impressed with how how pretty (laughs) the graph was because they basically look like, you know, identical. Mm -hmm. It was crazy. It was like, this is what we got with math. And then this is what we got with the actual instrument that detected the thing. Right. And it's it's crazy that, you know, he was able to theorize Mm -hmm. so completely, you know, with math. Math. Math, Math is guys. really good at stuff. Yeah, and he he himself didn't realize, Einstein himself didn't realize the importance of math until later in his career. And then he was like, oh, wow, this is really Math important. Math is so useful. For well, physics. Well, I just want to just kind of uh, emphasize that, because I feel like it would be really confusing to hear these chirps and thinking, oh, so it made a sound? Right. I don't understand what this chirp is and how it relates to it. It's, yeah, it's just that that was the wave that they like literally the wave the shape of the wave and that's mm-hmm. how that shape same shaped wave would sound if we plug it into something that turns it into a sound wave it's not that it was a sound wave right. sound waves are totally different exactly sound waves are the things that we already know about that are on the electromagnetic spectrum mm-hmm. which is things like uv light rays visible light rays radio waves x-rays you know um that are different lengths and that's whatever yeah it's so just so yeah, a way so to translate not, it exactly. for our own benefit so that we can yeah experience it because we can't feel gravitational waves and we can't hear them yeah but we can if we just plug it into this thing and it, goes, <laughs> it just it's, i feel like i'm in a submarine or something i know it does sound a bit submarine-ish. he was a very very impressive scientist and he ended up fleeing europe because of the rise of nazism and he actually came to the United States, hung out at Caltech for a little bit, and then ended up settling down in Princeton, New Jersey. Right. And uh, he came to the States in 1933, and um, he died in 1955. So it's actually, I mean, he wasn't, he hasn't been dead all that long. It's, yeah. it's kind of nuts. I mean, he's, it's, this is very recent. Like, our under, our new understanding of physics is very recent. It's 100 yeah. years old. Yeah. No, you have yeah. to take a, a moment to realize how, yeah, we're still in this kind of golden age, Yeah, if you want to think of it that way. So Einstein does have some living relatives still. Mm-hmm. He had two sons and one daughter. We don't often hear about the daughter. And in fact, her existence wasn't known until 1986 what? when it was revealed in some correspondence between him and his wife. That was released. So what had happened is before he was married to Maleva Marich, they were uh, buddies in college. Basically, she was the only woman in his class. <laughs> and um, who will I choose to have a crush on? Yeah. So there was that one. They <laughs> they one fell here. in love, and she became pregnant before they got married. Um, there was a lot of pressure from his family not to marry her because she was Serbian. She had a congenital, you know, hip problem. Like she wasn't super pretty. So all those things added up to people being like, "You can do better," uh. you know terrible Mm. but uh so she she became pregnant and there are very few letters that survive but uh, about this but they indicate that they did have a daughter and she was born in serbia you know her mother went back to have her there okay and they have always the family um 
up until, you know, Einstein's death and, and his wife's death, they always maintained secrecy about this child Jeez. to the point where they just never acknowledged her existence or spoke publicly about her. Um, there's speculation that she died just as a toddler due to scarlet fever. Oh. But that seems to be more and more a cover story for oh. her actually being adopted out. This is getting really weird. I don't like this. Yeah. So, I mean, options back then, limited, especially mm-hmm. if you were unmarried. And at that time, he didn't have a job yet as a patent clerk. So it seems that she had the baby in Serbia and adopted it to her friend, her close friend who raised the daughter. And the reason people, it's speculation, is that this woman raised a girl and she was blind. They think that might have been due to the scarlet fever. That was sometimes a result. Mm. And she never married and she was always very closely protected by the family. And she actually died in the 90s, 1990s. Dude. So she lived a long time, but like there was never any confirmation of her It sounds like Anastasia kind of stuff. It does. It does. And... It's interesting that if it was their daughter, that they never, they just kind of sought to protect her in that way. Because, I mean, I think it would have been a press field day. He became the most famous person in the world overnight with, you know, in 1919 when it was proven that, hey, yeah, his theory has legs. Like, Uh this actually happens. You know, bending of light. So, yeah, I think they just tried to keep that quiet. And there might have been a certain amount of shame involved, you know, Mm -hmm. but... Uh, They definitely protected that, but they did have two sons and he has, I think, five or so living great grandchildren in the world. So there's still Einsteins out there. Yeah. Get your hands on one. And I guess, I mean, and some of them, I'm I'm assuming their last name is is still Einstein because, you know. They're Einstein. And yeah, so that was, that was with his first wife. They later separated, divorced, and then he married his cousin, whose last name was also Einstein. (laughs) as that happens okay um, <laughs> so he had pulled a little darwin there yeah I mean, he pulled a little darwin. marrying the cousin yeah. or not not divorcing um, and however cousin, when but. he did win the nobel prize in 1921 he sent the prize money to his ex-wife to take care of their sons oh that's so nice. that was nice and then one of his sons eventually followed him over to the united states in the 30s um also to escape europe and uh, he ended up working at caltech for a while and some of his research is still at uc riverside i think huh. so yeah it's interesting but yeah, so that's that's a tiny bit about Albert Einstein, and yeah. there is a ton more. Yeah. So I highly encourage googling and yeah, we've, just looking we've up everything the surface you can. For you, so now you can start scratching more. Wait, what? You no. <laughs> <laughs> start itching that scratching. Wait, scratch that itch. So do something. <laughs> do something. Go go internet for a yeah, while. That was that was your intro. Yeah. So this has been Al. this has been Science Brunch with Albie Einstein, <laughs> almost Abraham Einstein, who we would love to have over for brunch. Yeah, I think he would be fun. He sounds like a funny guy. Yeah, man. Yeah, I, I love that there are so many quotables. For, I mean, I'm assuming from later in his life where it was like curiosity is more important than knowledge. Well, for someone who supposedly wasn't very good at language, he sure has a lot of good quotes out there. Yeah. So those well, he are, worked on them really hard. Those are worth a- <laughs> yeah, yeah, he actually he put more to, effort into that. He used to whisper he- things to himself before he said them out loud, which is why people were like, weirdo. Really? Yeah. That's so cute. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so look up more information about him. He's a fascinating guy for multiple reasons. And if you can, try to understand his theories. It's one of those things where you kind of like, you're like, oh, I get it. And then a second later, it's gone. Yeah, it's, it is, it's a tough one. And it's that to hold over and over and over again. Yeah. So it, it feels I, like I your brain is spilling over with to stuff. physics for <laughs> my explanations. Whatever. Physics will be fine. 
Um, it, it's funny. I remember going over relativity in physics, in college physics, mm-hmm. and there are some diagrams that will have kind of this this clock, and it'll show some distances, and it'll sh- it, it kind of relates everything. I've, I saw a good diagram, and I remember for a moment completely understanding it and just going oh my god i get it and it was kind of like the whole universe opened up in my brain and then five seconds later i lost it yeah it is really one of those things that it's it's sort of like a really complex 3d structure where you're looking at it from one angle and you're like oh i totally get this very complicated thing and then you turn it you rotate it a quarter quarter turn you're like oh god i lost it yeah (laughs) what (laughs) what is this thing Thank you so much for joining us for Science Brunch. We want to know what scientists you want us to talk about next. So hit us up on Twitter at Science Brunch, uh, comment on sciencebrunch.org, and remember to rate, review, and subscribe, and all that good stuff on iTunes. And we'll see you next time. 